Want to learn how to leverage your marketing to get clients on repeat? Charge a fee that leaves you with money in your pocket even after you've finished paying your bills? And finally, stop working with the clients that you've long outgrown? Liberated Business is a transformational program that combines group and one-on-one work so you get the best results possible. This differs from every other program out there because it helps you make money while supporting your joy and liberation throughout your entrepreneurial journey. Liberated Business starts this June and runs through November, and enrollment is open now. Visit thebadtherapist.coach liberatedbusiness to get all of the details and sign up. DM me on Instagram at thebadtherapist with any questions or to learn more. I cannot wait to get started with you. And a few times I had therapists I never even met send me emails saying, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to niche before you get licensed. Like they were really aggressive. So then I got a little bit scared and I, of course, talked to my supervisor. I called camp, you know, our our local therapist organization, like, no, you're fine. This is totally okay. There's this narrative though, that you have to suffer. You have to be underpaid. You have to do work that you don't love. You have to do work that's depleting. You have to work with everyone. And I just don't believe that's true. Especially if you have a vision for yourself right away. Why wait? And I did. I love that. And look where it's got me. Hey there, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm Felicia, The Bad Therapist, and today I am joined by April Snow, licensed marriage and family therapist in the Bay Area and one of my colleagues and fellow uh, therapists in training at the Center for, for Mindful Psychotherapy. So welcome to the podcast, April. I'm so glad you're here. I would love to just begin by having you introduce yourself to the listeners and say a little bit about who you are. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Felicia. I'm really excited to be here today. So yes, I am a highly sensitive therapist and LMFT. I'm also a published author, consultant, of course, creator. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. I have a fully telehealth practice at this point, a private practice, and I specialize in working with clients who or born with the trait of high sensitivity, which I'm sure we'll get into later what that means. Basically, people that are deep thinkers, deep feelers, um, helping them move past the overwhelm and self-doubt that often comes with being born with that trait so they can start to embrace their sensitive strengths. And my work with my clients is very relational. It's very mindfulness-based, kind of humanistic, strengths-based. Awesome. That's a great introduction. And I would actually love to start by asking you about what it means to be an HSB, because now I'm just so curious with that little bit of introduction that you already gave, I'm, I'm wanting to know more. So I would love to hear you describe what that means. You mentioned 
uh, being born with this trait. And so I would love to understand and for listeners to understand a little bit about what that means, because I'm also guessing there's a confluence between being a therapist also and being an HSP. Probably many therapists are HSPs. Obviously, a lot of people who come to receive therapy are probably HSPs. So maybe you could help us just understand what that means a little bit better. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people haven't heard this term before. You probably have heard people say, oh, you're sensitive or, oh, this person is is more sensitive than others. But it's actually a, a trait that people are born with. Uh, it's called sensory sense, sensory processing sensitivity in their research. So that's the formal name, but it goes by HSP for short. Um, which is easier to say. So about 20% of humans are born with this trait. It's also found, which I find really interesting, it's also found in in at least 100 other species, which tells you it's not trauma-based, it's not a mental health disorder. We are born with um, brains and nervous systems that are wired a bit differently. And this trait can exist among people of all genders, um, not just folks who are born female. Um, So when you are highly sensitive, your brain is wired differently. So areas around perception, memory retrieval, decision-making, emotional and information processing, these are all, and empathy are all much more active. So the trait shows up in a lot of different ways, but mainly there's four characteristics, which if it's okay, I'll break those down a bit so folks know. And you might start to recognize yourself in this if you are highly sensitive or someone that you know. So uh, the trait is characterized by does, depth of processing, overstimulation, uh, emotional responsiveness and empathy, and then awareness of subtleties and sensory information. So basically that just means you take more time to process your experiences, you need more time with transitions to make decisions, you're really thinking things through a lot. Um, And because you're so perceptive, you're often going to feel more anxious and overwhelmed and overstimulated. Um, you're going to feel all your emotions more richly, deeply, and um, you're going to have more empathy. We have more active mirror neurons as HSP. So you can easily put yourself in the other people's shoes and feel what they're feeling. And then you're probably going to notice sounds, lights, textures more intensely, and also all the little details. So it's a very rich, but sometimes overwhelming experience being highly sensitive. Yeah, it sounds like there's there are so many gifts associated mm-hmm. potentially with being an HSP, like Absolutely. being sensitive to yourself and to the world around you. Uh, it's almost like you see the world with a finer grain. I think about photography and when there's, or, or I guess now <laughs> there being more pixels, it's like there's yes. a higher quality of mm-hmm. image that you can sense more of yourself and the world around you. But with that comes sensitivity and the fact that things may be more painful, things yes. may feel loud. There's something that's a certain number of decibels may feel louder for you than it feels for somebody else. Exactly. Yeah, I love that metaphor with the pixels because, yes, if you're an HSP, you're seeing things with more nuance. So if I'm in a room, I'm picking up a hundred or a thousand little details and someone else might pick up a dozen details, right? You're really seeing the quality Um and the layers of your experience, which is definitely a gift. Like you notice those little details, you make a great partner or coworker. You just bring so much um, awareness to your experience. It's, yeah, it's an incredible gift, but it, it can take some time to peel away the difficulties and to embrace it right. and to access those yeah. gifts. Yeah. So it is really like having this superpower, but like all superpowers, it's like 
this incredible gift, but you have to learn how to employ it and how to use it and how to exactly. work with it. And how to yeah. access it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm finding myself wanting to go in so many different directions now <laughs> because I have so many questions for you, sure. um, but I'm going to contain myself and do them one at a time. Um, so I, I want to hear a little bit about your journey to becoming mm-hmm. a therapist. And I'm wondering if, were you already identifying as an HSP before you decided to become a therapist? Or is that something you sort of began to learn about and identify as you were going through your training? Great question. So I found out about the trait and uh, the person who's done uh, put the trait on the map, Dr. Elaine Aaron. I found out about her books and, and research. I think it was my second year of grad school at CIS where I was doing a research project on introversion and attachment theory and just to, and I was just basically exploring my own experience trying to figure out why do I feel differently in the world and I was having lunch with a classmate and they said have you ever heard of the highly sensitive person book and I was like I have no idea what that is and then it was like my whole world exploded open <laughs> like everything it's almost like I went from black and white to seeing in color, where everything started to make sense. And I just felt this fire underneath of me. Well, yeah, it was, it must have been when I was in my first semester of practicum as an, um, a trainee. So it was very early in my, my process of working with clients. Um, and I just wanted to, I wanted to sink into that work. So yeah, I didn't know before I became a therapist, but it, it really has, it's changed my life and it's changed my work. And it really, I, I say, I, you know, I live in a world of HSPs now. I'm married to an HSP. I work with HSP clients. I hang out with HSP therapist friends. Um, it's just, it's been life-changing. Yeah. I, and I, maybe that's a great transition to where we're going to go next, which is that you found out about this, you identified with this trait yourself, and you got super passionate about it. And from a very early stage, you said, I'm going to focus on this. And so because I so I met you at CMP where you were Mm -hmm. already focusing on this. And is that something you started to do even in your traineeships? Did you start to do that work with clients there? And then it just continued once you got your associate? It's true. Yeah, because I can remember the first client that I worked with who I recognized was an HSP and I you know, kind of clumsily at that point started to try to um, integrate this work around helping them understand what the trait was while simultaneously really learning about it myself. And because it's such a newly um, defined trait, probably only in the past 30 years or so have people really honed in on what this trait is and and you know how the brain works differently and we're still learning. Um there's no training protocol, right? So there's no formal training to go through to learn about how to work with HSP clients. So I was really doing a lot of self-learning. And thankfully, Dr. Aaron is in the Bay Area. So I was able to attend lectures and I eventually volunteer and and, um, uh, do some teaching myself at at some of her live events. But I was just just figuring it out on my own, right? It was like the wild, wild west. Uh, but so I was thankful enough to have my supervisor at the time. I, you know, I approached her and I said, I really want to start focusing in on working with HSP clients. I don't quite know what that looks like yet, but I know it's important to me. I felt very motivated because I know how much it changed my life and I wanted to help others have that same experience. And so I, I did, I started niching as a trainee as much as you can, right? 
Because right. I, you know, I worked at one of our schools, you know, we both went to the same grad school at one of the counseling centers, and you're, you're not really able to select your clients. But I did thankfully have some clients who were HSPs. And I really took a lot from that experience and, and started to think about how to work with these clients and have continued to, to um, apply my own ideas to the work since there is no formal training. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about your story is that you got really passionate about something and you decided to pursue it. And I I think for a lot of therapists, we're hesitant to do something like that because there is this prevailing belief and expectation that we're supposed to go learn about a bunch of different things and work in a bunch of different settings and not really even go into private practice. And if we do, it shouldn't happen until or unless we've kind of already burnt ourselves out in agency work. So I wonder, did you get any pushback? Maybe if not from your supervisor, but from other people who had the sense of sort of like, how dare you? (laughs) Almost (laughs) like you're taking the easy way out or, you know, we can be a judgy bunch with each other. And I know Mm -hmm. this can be, you took a leap that many therapists at that stage wouldn't take. So I want to hear about, was there any pushback? How'd you deal with that? Uh, what was your experience of making that move at that stage? Yeah, I broke all the rules. <laughs> I niched early within the first year of seeing clients. I went directly into private practice. I never, although I considered it at times to get my hours, I only ever did private practice. So I got 100% of my hours in private practice, you know, once I went through my traineeship, which at that location was set up more like a private practice. So that was the model that I knew. That was the model I knew I wanted to practice in. And so I remember being at this crossroads when I was deciding how to start my internship year. In my first internship year, do I go to a school? Do I go to a counseling center, like, you know, more of a, a community mental health center? Do I work in another setting? And I saw a lot of people getting their hours really quickly by doing going down that road. But I also saw a lot of burnout. I remember seeing clinicians who I looked up to who were maybe a year or two ahead of me leaving the field completely before ever getting licensed. And I thought, this is such a tragedy. And that's what's motivated a lot of my consulting work too is that shouldn't be the case. We should be able to have room to build practices the way we want to, to follow the path that we want to follow that makes sense for us. Right? There's so many different ways to be a therapist. <laughs> There's so many different roads to take. And so I did break the rules. I said, nope, I know I want to be in private practice. Why wait? And we both worked with Scott at CMP. And he, I loved what he said. He's like, I want you to build your practice now. So by the time you're licensed, it's done. You just set up your business license and you're ready to go. And that was such a gift. I love that autonomy. And so I built a really strong practice and so by the time I was licensed, I was already leading retreats. I was doing, you know, creating courses. I was doing all kinds of things. But I did get a lot of pushback along the way. I remember I used to, you know, I would I was doing a lot of groups along with my individual HSP work. So I was putting myself out on the local listservs and in the Facebook groups. And a few times I had therapists I never even met send me emails saying, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to niche before you get licensed. Like they were really aggressive. So then I got a little bit scared. And I, of course, talked to my supervisor. I called camp, you know, our our local therapist organization, like, no, you're fine. This is totally okay. You know, there's this narrative, though, that you have to suffer. You have to be underpaid. You have to do work that you don't love. You have to do work that's depleting. You have to work with everyone. And I just don't believe that's true. 
especially if you have a vision for yourself right away, why wait? And I did. I love that. And look where it's got me. I mean, having been able to witness you through that period of time in your career, like, was incredible. Thank you. You were and continue to be such a fireball. And I I think that's also such a, a great example to set for people who are HSPs. I think there could be a misunderstanding about the trait that HSPs are, there's almost um, a sort of handicap associated with that. That isn't to say that like, if you're an HSP, you should be able to do all the things April does, because I'm sure the trait manifests differently in different people and everyone has different goals. But I think it's really great to hear from somebody who identifies as having this trait, has this trait, and has been highly successful, has had really clear goals, who has had the courage to buck the system and go your own Mm -hmm. way. And we celebrate that around here in the bad therapist world, of course, like, and we can see where that's taken you. And I I think it's so helpful for other therapists to hear your story of getting those aggressive messages, because I've certainly gotten those. Um, I know so many of the people I speak to have, and it's pretty unfortunate in our field how harsh we can be towards each other and how we continue to promote this idea that You should wait your turn and this expectation that you only get to have wealth or a nice private practice or enjoy your work after you've suffered, you know, a certain length of time. And the the unfortunate thing about that is like, you'll never please everybody, right? There's always going to be someone out there to tell you, you haven't suffered enough. You still need to be paying your dues. You actually shouldn't be making the money you're making. There's always going to be some goody goody therapist out there that's saying, get back in your lane. You shouldn't be doing this. This isn't the way we do things. And one thing that's been so important to me is just to completely obliterate that and have the mindset of like, I'm just outside of that system. Like I'm just no longer trying to please other therapists. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Why do we have to put ourselves in this box, right? When there's so much more available to us as therapists. And you're right that people, they do have these this strong resistance that comes up. Oh, you're making too much money. You're too, maybe you're too happy. You should be struggling more, suffering more. But why? You know, I'm a very big proponent of don't work evening hours if that doesn't work for you. Don't work morning hours if that doesn't work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, take 30-minute breaks between sessions, whatever it is, right? So many pieces that we could change that we don't you know, do 45 minute sessions or do 90 minute sessions, whatever makes sense for you. But there's all this pushback around that it has to be this certain way. And why? If that doesn't serve you, that means you're going to burn out. You're not going to enjoy the work. You're going to leave the field earlier. You're going to help less people. And and then you're going to have to hold the weight of that, the grief of that, of leaving the field before you wanted to. Yeah, it doesn't work. And I think that's a really great point. That's something I'm always trying to promote you build the practice that works for you. And and I 100% agree. So many people leave the field early. Before I ever went into uh, my graduate program at CIS, I worked at a methadone clinic for two years. And the rate of turnover there was astounding. As far as I know, I'm the only person who left. I, I went into that job saying I would be there for two years. I gave a notice three months ahead of time and left after two years. And I was the only person I knew during that time that left in a really kind of contained way. Almost every single person who left, left at the brink of like falling apart because they were so overwhelmed. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of the standard for our industry. 
Uh, and to me, that's just no longer acceptable. And I'm tired of kind of almost hazing our younger therapists and us kind of using the excuse of, well, I went through this, so you have to go through it too. Why are we putting that on our younger therapists rather than saying, I went through this, I don't want you to have to go through this. Like, this is actually not okay. Yes. Uh, I should have never gone through this. And so I'm going to do work to make sure that doesn't happen for you. I think that is what I'm wanting to promote to the younger generation of therapists. Exactly. That we don't have to repeat the same hardships that previous generations of therapists have gone through, right? That there, there's so much more available in this in this stage of the therapy world you now with with teletherapy and and therapists you know I think therapy generally getting more and more respected and therapists having more value than ever before there's lots of different ways that you can show up as a therapist whether that's teaching or doing workshops or consulting or doing courses or writing books or anything there's so many options I think that we don't even really know about yet let's maybe yeah. let's support our next generation of therapists to be happier and healthier and have the work be more sustainable, right? Exactly. And so then, especially as a sensitive therapist, the more the work is meaningful and balanced, the more energy you're going to get from it and the more impact you're going to be able to make and the longer you're going to be able to stay in the field, which then opens up more and more opportunities for you and your clients. It's a win-win. That's the thing. It's a win-win for everyone. Exactly. And I think a lot of times we're presented with these options as if they're not a win-win, as if if we were to take care of ourselves, that would automatically mean that we're harming clients. And I, I think we're really selling ourselves short. We're a creative bunch of people. And to your point, I think we can all create practices that work really well for us. And when we actually do that, when we take the brave steps of being really honest with ourselves about what we desire, what we want, the lives we want to lead. I was just leading a, a clinic earlier today talking to therapists about fees. And we came up on this idea of where are we not being honest with ourselves about what we want? And then where are we not communicating our honest desires with our clients in terms of like what that means and how we set up our policies and practices, fees, mm -hmm. cancellation policy, all of that. And when we're not honest with ourselves, not honest with others, the client can't really consent to the relationship we're trying to create because they're consenting to something that we're not fully on board with. And that really harms the therapeutic relationship. So I, I think that's one of the bits of responsibility that as a field, we haven't done a great job with. We we haven't actually been very willing to be honest with ourselves and what we really want. Mm -hmm. It's so true. So many therapists make decisions about their practice, whether it's their schedule, their fees, their cancellation policy, whatever it is, based on what they think they should do, based on what they see other people doing, or based out of fear or guilt. And not actually looking at how much money do I really need to make to cover my expenses, to cover paying off my student loans, to save for retirement, to actually go on vacations, uh, to give myself something back so I can continue to do this work. You know, how much do I need to charge? Are we setting good, solid boundaries and modeling consistency for our clients? Right? Because I love that you said that, you know, the client is not able to consent if they don't know what the rules are. Right. We have a, a responsibility to be really clear on what our boundaries are, what our rules are when the client comes into our therapy practice. And I, right. I know, especially sensitive therapists, we often really struggle with guilt because our empathy is so high. And yet I think we end up doing harm to ourselves. And then we create really murky policies in our practices mm -hmm. 
And that actually isn't good for clients. So we can serve the clients better if we are consistent, if we charge our cancellation policy every time, if we say the session's ending now and we don't give that extra five to 10 minutes, right? Or whatever it is that ends up having a big impact. Yeah, it's hard. It can be. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I want to go back a little bit to something you were talking about earlier. Uh, when you got those emails <laughs> from therapists uh-huh. who are further along in their career and they said, you can't do this. And then you did your homework and which you had already done before, but you went and yes. you double checked yes. and you were like, actually, I can do this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that therapists can do even before they're licensed. Because I think a yeah. lot of us have no idea that you can already write books. You can already lead retreats. There's so much you can be doing before you're even licensed. So could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I remember getting those emails and I was like, I have a really, my supervisor at that time was really um, focused on ethics. So I was like, I know I'm okay, but I'll just double check. <laughs> but it, it did, I think for a moment, it, it set me back and I, I questioned like, oh, I'm supposed to be kind of a second class citizen as a therapist, as an associate or as an intern, depending on you know where you are, what you call it. Um, I was able to overcome that after a little bit of, of self-work and realize, oh, it is okay. So, because I think a lot of people think you can't, well, some states you can't, but in, in many states, you can have a private practice as a, as a pre-licensed therapist. You can set up that practice in the way that works for you with your own policies. And, it, you know, and you have to f- just find the supervisor or the, um, the organization where you can do that, which we were you know, lucky to do. Um, I did lead retreats. I taught workshops. I consulted even before I was licensed. People, most people are surprised about that. Um, I consulted with other therapists before I was licensed because I had developed a niche and I was well known. I think I did speaking engagements before I was licensed. I did before I was licensed. Um, so I've done a lot pre-licensure. Um, because I was like, why wait? I've put in a lot of time and effort. I really, and that's the beauty of deep diving and giving myself permission to follow my instincts. I was well-established within the first few years of stepping out into my internship. So I was it opened a lot of doors. People knew me for my niche, and I started to be respected for that niche early, and it's continued to build from there. So as soon as I got licensed, it's like the fire <laughs> was lit, um, and I've done more retreats. I've you know published three books, and another one on – I'm starting the early process of my next one um, – I sold lots of courses and, you know, done workshops and done more speaking. There's just so many things to do. And, and there's there's other options which aren't of interest to me, but that would be available to others as well. Um, I think you also did like corporate speaking and things that you wouldn't typically see a young therapist doing. Is that right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you, you totally yeah. have it right. I was at the time wanting to get into more like wellness workshops at corporations. And yeah, I I did one. I did a couple actually. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that was such a cool experience. And so I think for therapists who are interested in doing work outside of the traditional therapy model, uh, there are actually a lot of options available to you. And to your point, April, you should look for supervisors and placements that will allow you to do that. Yes, exactly. I remember, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I consciously chose this, maybe just energetically chose this, but I knew I needed a supervisor at some some level that was more forward thinking, right? So someone that not just was strong clinically, but also strong on the business side. 
right? Who thought outside the box, who gave me a certain level of autonomy while also supporting me, right? So that really helped my voice to come through. Where other supervisors are more by the book, they want you to show up in a certain way. That's fine if that works for you. If you need that containment, that structure, great. Uh, But if you're someone who has a lot of ideas and is multi-passionate, and can see beyond the one-to-one therapy model or something in addition to that, or even just has a really strong idea of what a private practice will look like, why wait? Don't hold yourself back. I'm so grateful that when I was at that crossroads thinking, do I want to go the traditional internship route and get my hours quickly? Or do I want to take a little bit more time and build, (laughs) build an empire essentially? right? To build a strong foundation. And I'm so grateful because it has allowed me to build so much on that foundation from just in a very short period of time. I mean, I've only been licensed three years. No, two and a half years, I think. So yeah, a lot has happened. pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. A lot has happened. I was talking in, I think it's my last episode about various trade-offs that you can make. And I think you just really put that perfectly You could have gone into a more traditional placement and gotten your hours a little bit more quickly, but you would be, if you did still want to do private practice, you would have been starting that from scratch, you know, a few Mm -hmm. years ago and you wouldn't be where you're at right now. And so you really consciously made that decision and you were in a position in your life where that, that was okay for you. That was acceptable. And you decided that was more important and it led you down a really great path. And so I think That's just another way, uh, another great example of how when we really think about our needs, our preferences, our our kind of bigger goals, and how we can start making moves towards that now, that really will serve us. And you've said so many times already since we've been recording, why wait? Uh, And I think Emily talked about that too. And it's definitely something that I talk about, like this idea of like, you don't need to pay your dues to comfort therapists who have gone before you. Exactly. That's not your job. You do you. If you already know what you want, go for it. They can be cranky about it themselves, right? But you can you can create what you want to create, and there's no reason for you not to. So for for clinicians who are who are looking at what the next option is for them, I would highly recommend finding uh, a supervisor who is business savvy. Um, If you are wanting to create things outside of the traditional therapy model, look for a supervisor who is doing that in their practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, fortunately, our industry is changing a lot and more and more therapists are breaking tradition. We're not just working as therapists in private practice. We're writing books. We have podcasts. We are doing retreats and speaking engagements and consultations. We're creating all these different things. And so I would say look for a a supervisor and a placement that's going to actually encourage that. If you know that's something for you, don't work with a therapist, a supervisor who is going to get in the way of that because you can still work with a supervisor who is has fantastic clinical skills, will ensure that you are following ethical and legal requirements, and can encourage these other things you want to do. So I really want to uh, disabuse listeners of the idea that those two things are somehow separate, that if you're going to be doing these these other pursuits, that it's somehow unethical. It's not. You can find a really quality supervisor and placement that are going to ensure you're acting ethically and that you get to do these other things. Exactly. Ethics don't have to be a question. Right, you can be an outside of the box or more modern thinking therapist with a podcast, with 
um, with doing a blog or whatever it is, leading workshops, coaching even, you can do all of those things and still be an ethical therapist. I think the two often get merged. Like if you're thinking outside the box, you must be doing something wrong. It's not true. And so yes, definitely as you're selecting a supervisor or if you're a licensed therapist and you're starting to build a private practice or you're wanting to pivot to make it more um, suitable for your needs, think about a consultant to work with and choose that supervisor or that consultant based on where you're going down the road, right? You want to take the first step of that journey, thinking about it clearly. And when I was going through my process of my internship and getting my practice to where I wanted it to be, I did make different choices with different supervisors. Sometimes I was leaning heavier on the business building part of my practice. And I chose supervisors that were really business savvy. And other times, I once that was really settled, I chose a supervisor that was just strong clinically because I wanted space away from the business part because that felt like that was settled. And then you might find someone who's doing both. So give yourself permission to choose that support person though, based on where you're at in the process, where you want to go next. You can be ethical and you can be a multi-passionate therapist. Exactly. Yeah, you 100% can do both. And if you have any interest in it, then you definitely should follow that passion. Absolutely. All right. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and and talk a bit more about niching. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of therapists are concerned with doing that, not just because they might feel like they can't yet, maybe at a certain stage in their careers, but also because they're afraid that they won't um, be appealing to enough people. Simultaneously, they worry that they're going to leave people out. So Mm -hmm. and yet niching is such an incredibly powerful tool. I was at this... uh, camping trip over the weekend with a bunch of different people. And I talked to this woman who told me that her daughter was a professional ballerina and a retired professional ballerina and really wanted to work with a therapist who understood that and found a therapist that specifically works with people who come from the professional dance community. And I was like, there we go. That's the power of niching. When this person was looking for a therapist, they wanted somebody who really got them. And fortunately, there was a therapist out there that had the courage to say, I work with people from the professional dance community. So that's obviously I'm biased. I think niching is great. I'm guessing you do too. But I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you did with your niche that you think was really effective and if you had any concerns about leaving people out or not casting a wide enough net. Yeah, I think that's the common misperception of niching. It's a therapist, especially sensitive therapists, get really worried that you are going to leave someone out, that you're going to turn someone someone away. And just think about how many people are out there and how many people are seeking therapy. There's no way you're going to help everyone, right? You can only at max maybe take on, and this is a high number, 20 to 25 people a week, right? So why not have those people that are coming in to see you weekly be in the same neighborhood, right? So I think it's not just about niching. It's not just about who you bring in, but it's all the other things you do as a therapist. So if I'm working, and even my niche working with HSPs, I've realized is way too large, right? Because I'm getting HSPs who are coming from all different walks of life with all different presenting concerns. We even could just basically thinking about the populations of HSPs. Families, teens, kids, couples, even that's a lot. So if I've zoomed in, I'm working with HSP, individual adults in this certain you know age bracket, 
who are experiencing issues with, um, you know, maybe attachment or overwhelm, perfectionism. I'm trying to narrow in more and more and more. And even that is a lot, right? And so the more that I can zoom in, the more effective I'm going to be as a clinician. Because then all the, the time I'm spending going through trainings, getting consultation, prepping for sessions, that is going to be focused and I'm going to be able to clear away all the noise of everything else I could be working with or on. And so then everything I'm doing can apply to every single client that I'm working with, right? If I'm working with everyone, let's say I'm a generalist, I'm spending a lot of times prepping for sessions. I'm doing a lot of different trainings. I'm learning about a lot of different clinical issues. And still, I'm not an expert in any one of those. But when, if, with my niche, I know exactly what questions to ask. I know exactly what to look for. I know exactly what changes to in, you know bring in and suggest, uh, not really suggest, but introduce or look for. Um, I'm a much more effective clinician the, the further I niche down. And there's still, I, I can imagine still honing that niche in even further. So yeah, I think there's a bigger picture here to consider when we're looking at a niche. And it's not about leaving people out. It's about how can I help the people that I am working with even more? How can I be even more effective and impactful in their lives? And it speeds up the, the treatment progress as well. And clients feel safe. They feel seen. Even when clients land on my website, immediately like, oh, finally, someone gets me, right? And to have that impact, it's so meaningful. Yeah. So I'm hearing that there are a lot of benefits to this. Like one of the benefits is definitely efficiency, right? When you are going to be learning about your preparing for working with clients, getting trainings, you can really focus your energy into one area. And that is a much more efficient use of your time. And that leads to you actually being a better clinician with your clients. So that's a huge benefit. Yeah, a huge benefit. I love that you you kind of narrow that down to efficiency because that's true. You are more efficient, which means you free up more time for yourself, which we you know we desperately need as therapists. Um, you're creating more impact clinically. Also, it can it can bring more financial impact as well. So the more of an expert I am, the more money I can charge. Mm. So that helps me have a smaller caseload, do other things that I want to do. Also, if you're if you want to integrate a sliding scale into your practice, it helps if you can charge a higher fee as your full fee, if that's something that you want to incorporate. Um, I don't think that's right for everyone, but if that's something you want, and a lot of HS, HSTs, highly sensitive therapists, do want to do that because <laughs> we feel like we want to support people and create accessibility, there's more room for that, right? When you're a generalist, let's say I'm a client, I'm looking at your website. Nothing is really standing out to me. I see you're working with a lot of different issues, a little bits. I don't really feel as compelled to reach out to you, right? However, if I go to your website and I see you're talking specifically to me in a very detailed way, I feel energized to reach out. And I have this happen all the time with clients. They're like, I have to work with you. You're speaking right to me. And then there's room to charge more money for those services because you are standing out, it's helpful. Niching is helpful in a lot of different ways, clinically, financially, health-wise as a therapist, just having more space and energy and fulfillment in your work. And it makes marketing easier as well. And then when you're reaching out to other therapists, they know exactly who you are. Oh, April, she works with HSPs and they'll, they'll think of me. 
I think of you for sure. Thank you. You know, yeah. when I've had clients, yeah, I've definitely sent people to you because of that. And and I would say that's true for all of my colleagues uh, who have niched that if you are really clear on your niche and I'm looking, I have someone reach out to me for a particular thing, then you're the first person I think of and you're the one who I'm giving that client's contact information to. Okay, so let's say that People are hearing this now and they're like, all right, April, you've sold me on niching. Clearly, this is a great idea, but I don't know what to niche in. What do I do? What do I do if like you had this like big, strong hit while you were just in grad school, even before you got your associateship, but I don't know what to niche in yet. I don't know quite who my people are or what I want to focus on. Do you have any advice for people who are don't have as clear of a call as you did at that time? Absolutely. I think this is something a lot of people struggle with. I see a lot of therapists think, asking like, well, who should I niche with or what's the 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 highest need? And I'd say forget about that. <laughs> um I'm always telling the people I work with, look inward. Redirect your gaze in when you're trying to make decisions about your practice, and the same goes for niching. So thinking about what have you struggled with? What have you worked on in your own therapy if you've have if you have gone through therapy? What have you supported others in your family or your friends over with that you felt really compelled to help them with? I think it starts on a personal level, something that you have a, a buy-in with, you know, a, a something that you feel um, inspired to help other people with because it, it impacted you or it touched you in some way. I think that's the most important place to start is looking at your own journey with your own therapy and with others in your life. And then if, if still you're feeling stuck, maybe nothing's standing out, then thinking about the clients you've worked with, if you have worked with clients yet, who has stirred something in you, right? Who have you felt really excited to work with? You felt really alive. There was fire underneath of you, got really excited to go into those sessions. You felt like you were your best therapist self with those clients. That's going to give you a lot of information. So looking at those clients, whether they're past or present, what was going on with them, right? What were they struggling with? Looking at parts of who they are, um, their story, their personality, their background, whatever it is. That I would look to your own experiences, whether it's personal or clinical. That's going to be where you're going to find the answers. Not in a book, not in a forum for with other therapists. Forget oh about God, what's popular. Ask other therapists. <laughs> no, because even if it's something that's in demand, I've seen this with therapists that I've worked with. They're working with a certain issue or population because maybe it's a cup, you know, it's couples work, so you can charge more per session, or it's immigration evaluations because you can, you know, those are high fee. But if you're not personally invested, it's just going to lead to burnout. It's only going to be a source of depletion. You're not going to feel personally attached to that work. There's not going to be meaning in it for you. It's going to feel empty. So find something that fills you up that you feel that tie with. That's going to be where your niche is. Amazing. Yeah. I, when I think about myself and all of the other therapists, I know my friends, my colleagues, and my clients, every single one of them has specialized in something that is near and dear to their heart. And that's something I started noticing like really early on that the friends of mine who had practices that were taking off were specializing in things they themselves had dealt with. And I think Mm -hmm. we oftentimes don't talk about this. Again, I think the field of therapy is changing and the the way that we did things in the past that was more of like a generalist approach. Like if you're a therapist, you just work with people. And 
that is starting to shift now. And what I'm seeing is that, no, if you're a therapist, you you are kind of working with uh, slightly past versions of yourself in a way. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's like, where were you? What were you really fired up about three years ago? What were you really working through? What was the big transformation in your life? And every single client of mine, that is exactly what they're specializing in. And that's where the juice is. They're passionate about it. They know how to talk about it. They care. They're still, I mean, they're also still kind of in the midst of healing it themselves. And I think sometimes for therapists, we'll say, well, I still am working on this. So how could mm-hmm. I possibly specialize in it? And it's like, no, that's that's literally why you're the best person to be working on this because you get it. Not that you're going to, in the therapy session, start talking all about your own story, but there's a way that you're going to understand that client that somebody else without that experience just isn't going to. Exactly it. That's exactly it. It's like your ideal client is a past version of yourself and you don't have to be at the end of your journey or because are we really ever? No, (laughs) it's an ongoing process as you go through your own healing and your own therapy. You just have to be a little bit ahead and that gives you enough perspective to support and hold clients. And it's not like we're giving clients the answers. We're really just helping them uncover the answers within themselves. And even if your story is similar, it's not exactly the same as your client. So there's no way to even know what's best for them. But like you said, you have just enough reference to their story that you you really get it. You feel tied in. You're excited to support them. And you can ask the right questions or guide them in the right way that they're going to uncover those answers for themselves. Awesome. Okay, I want to ask before, because we're starting to wrap up, is there anything mm-hmm. that we didn't get to that you were like, oh, I was really hoping we were going to talk about this, or I had some point I really wanted to make? I'm feeling complete. Nothing is popping yeah. out. Was there anything that you had that we didn't get to? Not really. I mean, I feel like this is a conversation we could just like kind of keep sure. on having endlessly, but like that's not, uh, you know, so maybe it's like, I'll just have you back. Yeah. Be no, because we, we talked about niching. We talked about... Um, you know, what therapists can be doing pre-licensure, mm-hmm. the type of power of niching, your own personal experience with becoming a therapist. We dug into what is the HSP trait. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that's kind of all the things we wanted to get to. Is that right? I think those are the most important pillars. You know, the looking at that it's okay to niche early or whenever you feel con- you know called to a niche looking at how to find that niche, looking within with with your own experience, pushing away the naysayers and the people that are trying to keep you in a box or telling you that you have to be a generalist. It's not the case. That you can actually have more impact in a lot of different areas when you give yourself that freedom to work with the clients that you feel really passionate and called to work with and that it's going to pay dividends across the board. From the moment your, your client sees your website, to the end of the treatment process. It's going to help you. It's going to help your clients. It's just, it's beneficial for everyone. So I hope people listening will just feel that permission to step outside of what you've been told that you're supposed to do. Not just in niching, but in any part of your practice. The whole shebang. (laughs) Ask yourself that question everywhere. Exactly. And you can be an ethical therapist because I know that's always the pushback. You can be an ethical therapist and still show up big in other ways in any way that you want. And you don't have to be all over social media, doing a podcast, doing retreats, writing books. Even if you just give yourself permission to show up big in your own way, in your own Mm. practice, it's going to be life-changing. It's going to free up so much. It's going to, you know, the work is going to feel meaningful and sustainable. 
and your clients are going to feel that too. It's not even selfish. (laughs) For those of you who are worried about being selfish, we've covered that base already. (laughs) Exactly. You don't have to feel guilty. It's going to support your clients as well as you. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, April, thank you so much for being here today. This has been such a joy to get to talk with you. You've shared so much wisdom with the listeners. And I I want to make a plug for your books, actually, because you have several workbooks for HSPs that can be great for therapists who identify as HSPs as, mm-hmm. as they've been listening, or if they're a therapist in private practice who are working with HSPs. These might be workbooks that they let their clients know about that could be helpful in the treatment uh, for that person. Absolutely. Yeah. So find your strength. It's a workbook for highly sensitive folks is probably that's my newest book. I think it's the most thorough. It goes through a lot of different aspects of the HSP experience. And it definitely I know therapists are using it with their clients in practice or just for themselves to learn about the trait or if they have it to learn about themselves. Yeah. Awesome. So where else can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So if you go to sensitivestrengths.com, everything is there. The workbooks, you can find me on social media. There's some free resources there as well. And then uh, I have a monthly workshop series for HSPs. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, April. This has been wonderful. And yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Felicia. This is such a joy. That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.